Grab your Bible, go to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 6 is where we're going to be. Um, as you turn to Ephesians chapter 6, let me set up a little bit of kind of where we're at, all right? So some of you guys are coming in. Some of you ate a whole lot of turkey and it messed with your brain. And i got to get us all on the same page. Ephesians was this book that this guy named the Apostle Paul wrote to a church in Ephesus. They were going through a lot of the same things that we go through as people who are trying to figure out what in the world does it look like to follow Jesus. He spends chapters 1, 2, and 3 explaining to them this is what it means to be in Christ. This is what it means to be a Christian. Here's how you became a Christian, and this is what it means to be a Christian. And then chapters 4, 5, and 6, he says this is how you live as a Christian. So 1 through 3 is in Christ. 4, 5, 6 is in Christ, but in Ephesus. And so for us, one through three is in Christ, and four, five, six is in Christ in McDonough, in this area. He goes into details, and he says, this is what it means to be in Christ and in marriage. This is what it means to be in Christ and in fatherhood. This is what it means to be in Christ and a wife. This is what it means to be in Christ, we're going to discover today, and have a job. This is what it means to be in Christ and go to church with people who vote different than you, think different than you, act different than you. This is what it means to be in Christ on planet Earth. And so today is going to be extremely practical. A lot of how. We're going to discover some why for sure, but we're going to lean into a lot of how to. Because Paul is trying to actually help make their lives better and glorify God more. I'm going to pray. We're going to dive into that. Jesus we need your help. We want to be people who don't just come into church and show you our devotion for an hour and a half, but we want to be people who are sold out, on fire, followers of you, 24-7, where we live, where we work, and where we play. Help us, challenge us, and lead us how in the world we can do that by the power of your word today. All right? Let's read our passage. Hopefully you're at Ephesians 6 by now. Jump on down to verse 5. Let's read this. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. So Paul has just got through expressing this idea that if we are filled with the Holy Spirit, one of the key defining characteristics of a life that is filled with the Holy Spirit is we will live in mutual submission to each other. If you take your eyes and you go a little bit back up to chapter 5, verse 21, you'll hear him say, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then from there, he says, okay, I want to show you what that looks like. I'm going to show you what submitting in marriage looks like. I'm going to show you what submitting in parenting looks like. And then here in the passage we're going to tackle today, he says, I want to show you what mutual submission will look like for employees and employer. Now, I know you may be seeing that going, it didn't sound like it was employees and employer. It says slaves and masters. Now, sometimes it feels like that at work, I know. But what I'm not going to do today is jump right over the fact that it really does say slaves, and it really does say masters. The Greek word there is doulos, which is undoubtedly the word for slave over and over again, as the Greek is translated into our New Testament. And the word for master is actually the same word that is Lord. So he's telling them to submit to your lowercase l, or lowercase l, Lord, the same way you would submit to your uppercase l, Lord, as in Jesus Christ. So we've got to kind of pause, hit the brakes. Before I have a conversation with you guys about how do we work and how do we uh, live as people who have bosses and maybe some of us in the room who are bosses, we have to discover and we have to lean into the context of what's going on right here to understand what in the world Paul is really getting at. Because for most of us in the room, when we hear the word slaves and masters, we don't think about what Roman Empire slavery looked like most of us in this room, when we hear slaves and masters, we think about things that happened in the antebellum South. We think about the slave trade. We think about people who were captured from their native country, put on boats, brought here, and forced to work. We think about the horrible atrocities and the horrible sin that it was 
for slavery to be in our country. That's where our mind goes. And a dangerous thing, again, it's not bad that our minds go there. I think it is telling that there is gravity to that sin, that that's what yanks our minds the moment we hear the word slave and master. But it is always dangerous to come to any passage of Scripture and read it and interpret it based off of what you have in context in your mind based off of what those words are and not to take it to the immediate context that the people who immediately heard these words written by the Apostle Paul to them in their church home would have thought when they heard those words because they got this letter before the transatlantic slave trade ever happened. So we have to go from there first, put these things in context, and then figure out what in the world we should think about slavery as far as the Bible and as far as the gospel is concerned. All right, so I wanna first and foremost walk you through some similarities and differences. All right, this is, forgive me if I'm gonna be educational, but I hate it that sometimes people go to church for decades and decades and decades and they don't learn anything. So today you're gonna actually hopefully learn some stuff. All right, so put your thinking caps on or something. Um, Let me talk to you about the similarities and the differences between slavery in the Roman Empire and then slavery in what we think of when we think about slavery, most of the time what happened in Europe and happened in America and we read about in history books and we were taught about in Georgia history. All right, so let's talk about some of the differences. First of all, slavery in Ephesus was not race-based. What Rome would do is they would go to many different countries and they would uh, conquer these countries because they were a superpower nation. They would conquer these countries and they would bring in the people who lost and they would become their slaves. There was, in Rome, there was a diverse group of slaves. Uh, some of the historians that I read, they said there were upwards of 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. One went as far to say was if you removed slavery from the Roman Empire, it would be like removing machinery from the United States economy today. So think about the way any machine car, pencil sharpener, computer, remove all of the machines from our economy, that would have been the equivalent if you you tried to remove slavery from the Roman Empire's economy. It would have killed it. So there were 60,000 plus slaves. There in Ephesus specifically, it was about one-third of the people were slaves. So think about this in the context of the local church that Paul is writing this letter to. He's writing this letter and he talks about husbands, he talks about wives, and now he turns and he talks to slaves. There in the local church in Ephesus, maybe one third of the church population were existing as slaves, which I'll just pause for a second and remind us because we have a propensity as Christians in America where it is the the main religion, we're a nation under God and all these other types of things. I know there's a shift and there's tension there for sure, but I wanna remind us that from our faith's roots has been an attractiveness to the marginalized. Something about our Jesus, something about our faith has always attracted and embodied love, care, and support, so much so that the people who were ostracized and marginalized and taken advantage of by society somehow, some way, always find themselves being attracted to Christianity. So far be it from us to ever live with and be okay with a Christianity that becomes repulsive to the marginalized. That the people who are ostracized, the people who are taken advantage of, the people who are in disadvantages, they would say, well, the last thing I ever want to be part of is a Christian church. No, they should be knocking our doors down because in the church, they find hope. In the church, they find unconditional acceptance. In the church, they find love. In the church, they find forgiveness. In the church, they finally find people who see them as their God-given value that they were created in the Imago Dei. And so Paul's writing to this group of people, and the fact that he even addresses them is just a a complete culture shock. Paul addresses them, and he speaks into their life, and this is because slavery in Ephesus was was something that was not race-based. There were a lot of them. They were there. Another thing that is uh, one of the differences between slavery uh, there in the Roman Empire and slavery that, that we read about in our history books and we have horrible experiences with is you could actually choose slavery as it existed there. So, for instance, if um, somebody, um, if Joey Flores, all right, he's a he's a willing and dealing, you know, business guy, you know, and he's just got a lot of money. And I come to him as a just up and coming entrepreneur, and I'm like, Joey, listen, bro, um, I want to start a farm, all right. And he looks at me and goes, You really farm? Um, 
And I go, no, I want you to underwrite this farm. Hey, Amen. just please invest in this farm. I'm going to start this farm. It's going to be awesome. And uh, I go and I start the farm. And I invest all of his money. And um, because I'm me, the farm tanks. Um, people didn't want to just show up and hear me talk at the farm. They wanted to see farm stuff. And the farm tanks. And I'm still on the hook for $2.3 million to Joey because of this farm that he invested in. Now, in their day and age, Joey would have the right to just throw me in prison because of the money I owed him. Or I could go to work for Joey on his farm and pay off the debts I owed. I could willingly become a slave to him. My family would as well. Oftentimes, if the patriarch of the family was too old and owed a debt too large, he would get his kids into slavery. Again, it's a broken system, but it's definitely different. Nobody, uh, no one in, in Africa, when people were raping and pillaging their community, nobody was signing up and, and saying, yeah, I want to go do that. And that's one of the big differences. This was actually something that people understood that there were positive attributes to as going to this as opposed to going to prison or death. Next, because it was such a centrifugal part of the Roman economy, the slave masters encouraged education. They wanted them to learn to read. They wanted them to learn new skills. They were constantly trying to further their education so that they could benefit them more. And that is the antithesis of what slavery in Antebellum South was. We just want you to do your job, shut up, and move on. And lastly, one of the things that was a major difference is there was a higher possibility of freedom. Freedom was for sure for almost all people who were in slavery there in the Roman Empire. There was so much slavery that the people were being freed that actually Caesar Augustus had to implement this new rule. Most at 30, 30 was age I kept coming to over and over again as I studied this. 30 was age that most slaves were set free. Even if you were born into it, slavery at 30 was most of the time when you got set free. So much of that was happening that Caesar Augustus actually had to limit the number amount of slaves that were set free per year because too many of them were being set free. And he was fearful that that was going to ruin uh, the Roman Empire. So those are some of the differences. Got to understand that those are some of the differences. Now, some of the similarities. Again, this is the, the brutality of it all because despite the fact that uh, slavery in the Roman Empire may sound less terrible than slavery in the South that does not make it better. It does not make it something that God is just cool with. It does not make it something that is any less sinful. And that's where we see the similarities. People were born into it. They didn't have a choice whether or not you're going to be a slave. No, but there was no equal opportunity. And secondly, they were treated like property and not people. There were no legal rights and they were often used and abused. And this is the context. Again, these are the similarities. This is the context that the Apostle Paul is walking into, knowing that in the society that he's trying to coach, lead, and train this local church. And remember, the church isn't like it is now in Ephesus. This is a fledgling, ragtag, upstart kind of like in, there in Rome, the people who called themselves Christians were actually referred to as atheists. They were just so backwards because the Romans called them atheists because they didn't believe in all the other gods. They just believed in that one Jesus guy. And so this is a fledgling group of people inside of a machine that is the Roman Empire. And Paul knows that part of his call is to allow the gospel to change the way slaves look at their masters and change the way masters look at their slaves. Now, some of you may be here going, well, what in the world? Okay, so is the Bible anti-slavery? Is, is the Bible against slavery? And I would say unequivocally, yes. There's Old Testament verses. I'm going to show you a New Testament verse too that I think unequivocally speak against this. Uh, Exodus 21, 16. Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Again, it doesn't say it's sinful right there, but the fact that we're killing somebody over it is the reason. <laughs> like it, it, because it is sinful. Do not do this. And again, most, most of what was the transatlantic slave trade was this, stealing a man and making him your possession, unequivocally, undoubtedly sinful. Now, what Paul does is he comes on the scene in a much different aspect of indentured servanthood that is probably what a lot of hap is what's happening in, there in Ephesus. He speaks into that, and we have Paul and the New Testament and the gospel heart on display in a real-life laboratory that is the relationship between Paul, a runaway slave named Onesimus, and his slave master, Philemon. There's actually this really tiny, it's only one chapter, 
in the very back of the Bible. I'm not even going to tell you to turn there because it almost would take you half the service to find it. Philemon, very back of the Bible, it's all about a le- it's a letter all about how Paul is trying to get this man Philemon to welcome back in a runaway slave that Paul has come to love, that Paul has had serve him and advance, help him advance the gospel. Here's what Paul says to his friend Philemon on behalf of the runaway slave Onesipus. This is verse 17 and 16, if you want to go look it up later. He says, perhaps the reason he, Onesimus, was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. See, Paul knew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that this atrocious institution that was slavery would end when men and women viewed each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. That was picked up on by anybody who read the gospel. And so as this church is growing, more and more people are seeing the gospel and they're seeing the equality of men and women. They're seeing the fact that there is no, neither nor Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female, that we are all one in Christ. They're reading these things. And what Paul knows is that my goal here is not social reform. My goal here is the gospel spreading, infiltrating hostile hearts so that people see Jesus. And when they see Jesus, they'll see each other as people who are united by Jesus. His blood was given for them the same way his blood was given for me. And the fact that on the outside, their skin may have more melanin in it, it doesn't change the blood that was paid for them. That we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And that message was picked up by abolitionists all throughout history. It was picked up here in America, in Europe, as the Quakers, a Christian denomination, led the charge and led the funding for abolitionists to take place. It was in the heartbeat of William Wilberforce as he led this through Parliament. It was in the heartbeat of American evangelists and preachers like John Wesley and these other guys here in our country who led the way. It was the heartbeat of Dr. Martin Luther King who said in his I Have a Dream speech and leaned it all back into the fact that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And for anybody in the room who still has tinges of racism inside of their heart like I do, You have to remember that we are brothers in Christ. The only hope to cure race and the only hope to fully experience the reconciliation that has already happened is when we see each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. And I believe that's how we look at slavery in the Bible, in context of where it was, in the context of what's happened, in the context of what needs to happen moving forward. All right? So now let's talk about work, okay? What he leans into, and here's how this makes a transition. Track with me. What was existing there in Ephesus was work that was taking place by the bondservants so that they could feed their family. And again, I don't necessarily agree with this, but it's, it's interesting to think about. One of the um, commentaries I was reading on this was saying that if Paul had came in and said to every slave in the church of Ephesus, no longer go be a slave, people would have been disobedient to him because they knew that if they were to leave what they were doing as a bondservant, it was a death sentence. How else will I make money? How else will I provide for my family? How else will I do this? I have to be here. And so what Paul is actually calling for is reform with the slave master and the slave relationship so that it actually can be mended. And he leans into this and he tries to encourage change here within the relationship because he knows that if he had just came and said, everybody who is a slave, run. And you're not sinning, run. You're free. You're free. You're free. And if he came in and said to all the slave masters, hey, let them all go. They would have came in and said, hey, you're free to go. And they would have said, many of them would have said, uh, No. And so Paul's writing to a very different context than we are because what's really happening there in Ephesus is a relationship between worker and manager. And Paul's trying to redeem it in that way. And so that's what we're going to try to do today. All right, so let's have a conversation about work. When it comes to work, you guys remember your first job? First place you ever worked? (laughs) Not the funnest memory to drive back up on on a Sunday. When it comes to work, most of us, when we think about work, when we think about work, we think about what? 
That's where we all start. What do you do? Ladies in the room, one of your friends who's single, she starts dating a new guy. When you ask her about him, you ask her name, but maybe one of the very first questions you ask, what does he do? All right, what does he do? Men, one of the first few questions we ask within meeting a new, a new dude, right? All right, man, what's your name? Bill, all right, Bill, what you do? Well, I, I work for the railroad or I do accounting or I'm a IT guy, whatever. That's one of the first things. That's how, so much of our identity is rooted in what we do. And so when it comes to work, this is the way the world pushes us to it, is it's really all just about what you do. And you, there are some cooler jobs and there are some not so cool jobs, right? There are some honorable jobs and there are some not so honorable jobs. And rarely, if ever, do we get to this place where we jump past what we do and we go to why. Well, yeah, I'm a, I'm a police officer, but why am I a police officer? What's my bigger motivating factor behind this? Yeah, I'm a stay-at-home mom, but why have I chosen this to be what is my profession? Yeah, I'm, I'm an accountant, but, but why do I, I crunch these numbers? Why do I do this? And very rarely do we ever take it to the third rung and actually go, well, okay, who am I doing this for? Am I really doing this for my benefit? Am I really doing this for my family so I can put food on the table? Or is there even a higher calling, a higher purpose, a higher being in God that I'm actually serving? Is he the who that I'm working for? So what I'm going to argue is this is the world's understanding of what work is. And most of us in the room, this is how you think about work. It's just what I'm doing. Maybe you'll get to why, and rarely if ever, you'll get to who. And if you do get to who, it's you and your kids, and it's not your God. It's the way most of us come at work. So what Paul's going to do here is he's going to flip this on its head. He's going to say, if you're going to ever understand work, if you're ever going to actually even be biblically successful at work, I said biblically successful, because you can be successful in work and do it the other way I just showed you. If you're going to be biblically successful at work, God honoring at work, if you're going to work in light of the gospel, you have to start with who. Who do I work for? Who is my boss? Who is really in charge here? And then you go to why. Well, why am I doing this? And the why reverts right back to the who. Well, because of who he is, because of who God is. And then the what is easy. Well, it's in light of who I'm working for, in light of why I'm doing that, here's what I'm doing based off of my talent, my unique skills, my abilities. And so what Paul does here, and you don't really see it when you first read through the passage. He filters it all in in three different ways. He anchors everything he's going to say about how to do stuff. Because he told them a lot of how. He's like, you know, don't just be people pleasers. Don't just, you know, give them eye service. You know, work with your whole heart. Be sincere. Know it's the will of God. Do it in goodwill. He did a lot of how. But before Paul told them all the hows, he told them the who. And I want to show you that. This is the passage. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear. And you see bond servants just think, I'm an employee. You can fill that in right there in our modern context. Employees, obey your earthly masters, your managers, whatever you want to call it there, with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart. That's a bunch of how stuff. Here's the why. Here's who. As you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ. He's anchoring it in who? Doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with goodwill as to the Lord and not to men. These three statements, as you would to Christ, as bondservants of Christ, and as to the Lord and not to men, is him anchoring how we work in Jesus. It's him anchoring who we work for in Jesus. So let's look at these real quick. First of all, who work is for? Verse five, right there. All work is to and all work is for Christ. Now I know a lot of times, like you're flipping burgers at McDonald's, you're entry level, you're a babysitter, you're a stay-at-home mom, you're in an IT world, it's hard to go like, all of this is for Christ. We don't show up a lot of times just thinking that's why we're doing these things. But he said, no, all work is for Christ. And verse five makes that very clear. He says, bond servants, employees, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. So the same way that hopefully you would see who Christ is, see what he has done, and obey that, that's what you should do your earthly manager, boss, or employer. I'm serving them, loving them, obeying them as I would Christ because he's got authority, because he loves me, because he cares for me. I do that as I would Christ. Now, another verse in Colossians that back this up is a great one. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart. Now, remember, it does not say whatever you do on Sunday, 
whatever you do, as long as it's a really cool job, whatever you do, once you get past middle management, whatever you do, once you're in charge, it says, whatever you do. So like, whatever you do, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Trying to help them understand that all work is holy work, that all work is worship, that you're not working for people, you are working for Christ. Look around your crooked, messed up, weirdo boss and see Jesus. Second statement that he gives is our work is who our work is for. It says you're a slave to Christ. Verse six. See, we're not working, by the way, of eye service as people pleasers, but we are bond servants. All right, so he's taking a step further. He's saying, you don't just work for Christ, but you're a bondservant of Christ. You're doing the will of God from the heart. So what he's saying here is not just an application point to people who are in slavery. It's actually an application point to anybody who's in Christ. And he proves that because in 1 Corinthians, he's not just writing to slaves here. He's writing to the whole church in Corinth. And he says these words, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You don't own yourself. You're not in charge of you. For you were bought with a price. This is slave, slave master language. Because everybody in this room, you will. You don't have a choice. You are a slave to something. You're either a slave to sin and your flesh and this world, or you're a slave to Christ. And I'm telling you, there is only one worthy slave master, and it's Jesus. And that's the anchoring point that Paul is trying to put people in here. He's trying to help them understand. You are not just out here just floating around as, and again, sometimes, this is weird. Um, there's a few things in culture that just rub me the wrong way. And one of them is this notion. And again, maybe I get some of the heart behind it. But when we start calling each other kings, young king, oh, you're a queen. I get that. I'm, but I, last time I checked, I don't, maybe some people are struggling with their ego and they're, they're thinking too highly of themselves. But most people, they got it, right? And so, yes, is our father the king God? For sure. But every now and then there is a danger in thinking that I'm a king and I'm a queen because then I forget what my king actually did for me. He laid his crown aside and he served me. And so maybe instead of looking at his first title of what he actually is, I actually look at what he actually did as a king. He served. He laid his life down. He fully surrendered and submitted to the Father's will. And so if we want to live lives as workers who are people who realize I've been set free of my sin and now I'm not just out here working. I'm not just a mom. I am actually part of your identity as someone who's in Christ. And it sounds weird to say this, is a slave of Christ because he bought you. He paid the price. He redeemed you by, the, by his blood. He bought you out of what? He bought you out of sin. He bought you out of death. And again, the slavery that he's inviting you into is non-oppressive. It is actually the best thing for you. There is no master like him. There's no savior like him. And if we don't understand that when we work, when you punch the clock, when you do your nine to five, that you're doing that because Christ is your master, Christ is your manager, Christ is the one who paid the price for you to be free from sin, hell, and death, when you realize that that's your why, you realize that's who you're working for, it changes everything. It goes on from there. Third thing, he says, your work is for your master and not for men. It's his way of saying, I need you to look around your messed up boss and see the cross. Your identity and your self-worth is not tied to what a boss thinks about you. You're, you wanna find your self-worth, you wanna find your identity, look to the cross. You want to find, you can sit around and ask, your, ask yourself the question, how much am I worth to this job? How much am I worth to this employee? Do I really matter to them? I'm going to break it to you the hard way. Like, you will be replaced. You can get hit by a bus tomorrow, and almost every person in every job that you have in here, you will be replaced, and they won't know about you or remember you in six months. So it's a really bad idea to let your identity, let your joy even, Rise and fall based on how they think about you. Because that's going to go and that's going to change. But to say, I'm going to look around whoever's leading me here. I don't work for men. I work for Jesus. And here's here, to the managers in the room who are going, dang, like what? 
You, <laughs> nobody's going to listen to me ever again. I'm never going to hire anybody who goes to church with me. They aren't going to listen. No, 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 no. What this means is you actually become the best employee there is because you're not working for them, you're working for him. And trust me, the employee you will be when you're working for Jesus fails in comparison to the, work, the, the, the employee that you'll be when you're working for just a, a man or a woman. You will work so much better when you're really working for Jesus because you realize what work he went through on the cross for you. So that's him anchoring it in who. This is who we work for, okay? Now, take the corner and we're gonna transition into how. He gives some really practical tips. So if you're young here and you're like, hey, I wanna get a promotion. I wanna like go to work and, and not get fired this week. Like it's, it's Christmas time. I, can't, I gotta keep my job, all right? Put some of this into practice and I promise it'll help, all right? Let's lean into it. I ain't got time for all that. Let's get right here, all right? Listen to some of these things. Bond servants, again, plug in employee there. Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling and with a sincere heart. We're gonna unpack all these. And again, he anchors it as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service. That's a how thing. Don't do it for eye service. Don't do it to people, please. But as bond servants of Christ. Again, theological anchoring. Do the will of God. It's going, I know my job is the will of God. That's a how. From the heart. I'm doing it from the heart. How am I gonna do it? From the heart. I'm gonna render service with goodwill. I'm gonna do it with good intentions, not out of you know, selfish motives. Again, then he anchors it back in Christ, as to the Lord and not to man. Again, how? Knowing that whatever anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or free. So in case you can't tell in there, there are eight things. He says, this is how people who are in Christ should be employed. I want to walk through these really quick. We don't have to spend a ton of, ton of time here. And again, let me explain something to you really quick about work. Work is not a product of the fall. Adam gave God, or that's reverse, God gave job and, oh man, my words are, I'm doing a bad part at my job today. Um, God gave Adam a job before sin entered the picture. Your work, I know it may feel like it sometimes, your work, as bad as it may be, as toxic as a work environment may be, it is not a product of the fall. God gave Adam work before sin ever entered the picture. Even if you go through in the book of Revelation, you think about the things that we'll be doing in the kingdom of God. We will be working even in heaven. Here's what I would say. You will always have work. You will not always have a job. There will not always be something that people are paying you to do. Some of you are retired in this room. You feel like, well, I don't go to work anymore. Yeah, you have a work. If you're in Christ, you for sure have a work. Go into all the world and make disciples. That's not something you retire from, friend. You will always have a work. You may not always have a job. And here's how he says we are to work. First of all, obediently. What this means is if we're in Christ, we don't get the freedom to take our creative uh, uh, P's and Q's. Like when a boss tells us to do something, we don't go, yeah, I heard how you wanted me to do that, but then I found a shortcut. We don't go, yeah, I heard how you told me to do that, but then like I realized that there was actually this better way. We just listen. And even if the way is dumb, we listen, we obey, we respect the authority, and if we feel like there is another way, we respectfully say, hey, I did it this way, and here's one of the things that I learned. Can I maybe pitch to you some ways where we can improve that? That's the type of employee a boss longs to have. Next, he says, with respect, with fear and trembling. What he's not talking about here, because in a second he's gonna say, managers, stop threatening people. So he's not after this like, oh goodness, the boss is in the room, everybody, you know, you're just, you know, Bob Cratchit with Mr. Scrooge. Yes, Mr., you know, like that's not what he's after. I believe what, more so what he's after is if, if, if Billy Graham was still alive, and somebody came to me in between services and said, hey, Billy Graham is coming to the second service today. He's gonna to sit in the front row. The way I preach differently, this way that my heart beats a little bit faster to know that the great Reverend Billy Graham is listening to me bring a sermon, that's what he's after there. And, and what he's communicating to people who are employees, he's, re he's saying, realize your manager and their influence over you was put there by God. And so respect the person behind the position. Next, he says, to do it with sincerity, to actually do it with a sincere heart. Now, I don't know about you, but I've definitely had times when I've been working where I've gone, my heart is not in this. Never here. Um, but definitely had times when I have, uh, definitely had times, I was just like, man, my heart's just not in it today. Y'all ever been there? Anybody be real this morning? I just, my heart's not in it. Even if you're a stay-at-home mom and you never admit to your kids, my heart's just not in it today. <laughs> this is a Netflix day, honey. Uh, let's go. That's okay. 
Here's, here's your new permission. Your heart was never meant to be in your work. Your heart is supposed to be in who you're working for. And this is where you get this freedom to go, even if I'm doing a job I don't like, even I know if this job is just a placeholder until God moves you to what next, it's okay if my heart is not in it. I know the God who gave his heart for me to give me this job so I can provide, so I can have this. And so I'm gonna be okay with my heart not being in it in this moment. I'm not gonna let my hands slack off because it's not about my heart being in it. It's about my, my heart being surrendered to the will of God and how he asked me to serve in this role as I was serving him. It's okay if my heart's not in it. Next, he says, work full of integrity, not by way of eye service or as people pleasers. So you know what this is like. You have this person at work. Anytime the boss comes in, they, they start, you know, just hit that keyboard. And then the boss gets by and it's back to. He's saying, don't just work hard when somebody's watching you. Don't just work hard when, when something's on the line. Don't just try to bring your best because you know you're in an environment where, where other people are going to be paying attention. Don't just do it to get their approval. And I think if Paul was here today, he would also look at our up-and-coming generation, the generation, my generation down. And again, young people in the room, listen to me here. Because if, if you go to high schools and middle schools right now, you go to high school, middle school, you start talking to people, and you ask them, hey, what do you want to be when you grow up? You're not going to get no more lawyers, doctors, you know, politician, president. You're not going to get any of that. What do you want to be? I want to be an influencer. I, I want to have a YouTube channel. I, I want to uh, stream on, I want to play video games on a stream and, and make my, I want to be an influencer that way. And so what a younger generation has done has said, where maybe my generation up, you would say, well, I just want to have one boss who's a good boss and maybe one day I'll work really hard and then I'll be the boss. A younger generation down has gone, I don't want to be a boss. I want to vlog out of my van. I don't want a boss. And they're making, listen, you laugh, but they're making a lot more money than you are. I'm not kidding. But here's the danger in this. I think Paul, if he was preaching to a modern society, would also say, it said, you traded in having one boss for having thousands of subscriber bosses. Living and dying off of how many thousand little influential bosses. Because again, you said you want to be an influencer. And in turn, you're being influenced by everybody who clicks and posts and doesn't. And so they are your boss. And you curate yourself and your life based off of what they'll see of you. It's just as dangerous, whether you have the one boss who you only do things for or you're a younger person in the room who goes, oh, I don't have to worry about this message because I'm never going to have a boss. Well, yeah, you will. Somebody, whether it's a thousand somebodies or one somebody, you'll have a boss. So he says, don't do it just for the looks. Next, he says, knowing it's the will of God. Now, <laughs> this is a hard one because sometimes you have really dumb jobs and, or meaningless jobs or just no fun jobs. And you go, is this really God's will? I remember I felt like this, man. I graduated college. I had my degree in, in biblical studies, a youth ministry minor. And I was like, man, I want to go do a pastor, God. And God was like, you're going to work at Home Depot. <laughs> I was like, no, thanks. Uh, but nothing was really popping at the time. And so I went to work at Home Depot. And my job, and again, anybody who knows me really knows me. Those is like, this is like the antithesis of, of me. My job was to make, make sure all the things on the shelves were nice, straight, organized. New product would come in. I would move everything down and just organize it. Like it was the perfect job for something. Anybody got OCD in the room? All right. Th this is the job for you. I'm, whatever, if, uh, if there's OCD on this spectrum, I'm, I'm, I'm on this end. And this is my job. And one day I'm whining and complaining about God at Panda Express on my lunch break. And I just felt like God was like, like, Trent, if I can't trust you with two and five eighths wrenches, what makes you think I can trust you with a church? Like, if I can't trust you to stack bags of grout the right way, what makes you think I can trust you with an at-risk teenager, son? And I was just like, okay, <laughs> I get it. See, because what God's after for all of you, he, he's after character. God doesn't care what your title is. And, and really, he doesn't care about how much money you bring home because what did he say he will do for you? Jesus turned around the mountain. He said, look at the lilies. Check them birds out. Are they worried about where their stuff's coming from? Or does God take care of them? How much more does your Father in heaven take care of you? See, God's not, I don't think he's super concerned about your 401k. I don't think he's super concerned about your uh, bank statement or, or how much money you get on your pay stub. I think he's much more concerned with your character. And I believe, um, I've seen it to be true, God promotes character more than he does skills. And most of the time, the people that you read about in scripture who had all the skills but didn't have the character they're all our villains. 
God's looking for runts of the litter with godly character out in the pasture looking over the sheep faithfully, playing the harp just with a heart for God, brave enough to fight bears and lions. And he lets all this character develop out in the pasture where nobody can see it. And then one day he says, I want you to also be really obedient with this really small, dumb, menial task of delivering some cheese and biscuits to your brothers. And then, Je- then David shows up at his destiny because he had character. And one of my biggest prayers for you, my biggest prayers for me, and it's been a guiding prayer in my life, and I think God has answered it most of my life. God, never promote me to a place. Never let my gifts take me to a place that my character can't sustain me. Because listen, young people in the room, you're gonna grow up in a world that more and more prioritizes gifts. All people are gonna care about your gifts. Your gifts may be your voice. Your gifts may be your looks. Your gifts may be your influence. Your gifts may be what you can do with a computer. Your gifts may be a whole bunch of different things. And the world's gonna try to promote you and move you along the line. People are gonna try to take advantage of your gifts and move you to new places and give you more influence because of your gifts. But I've seen it happen over and over again. It happens all the time in the church world because we don't really get into the whole character thing. We just want that girl who can get on stage and sing. We just want that guy who can get on stage and preach. And we don't really pay attention to their character. And we promote them to this place and then they have an affair like three weeks in. Or they're embezzling money. Or they're doing stupid stuff because their character couldn't take them and sustain them at the place where they had that much influence. So sometimes you have to be okay with God having you where he has you so that he can develop a character that will actually keep you at the spot you want to get to. So you got to know it's God's will. Next, you got to do it from the heart. Kind of talked about that already here. I don't want to belabor that point anymore. Uh, doing it in goodwill. This is like with good intentions. Knowing that everything you did, you did it with a positive heart, with goodwill. This is knowing, like we talked about last week, if you want to figure out where you're at with your kids, go ask them, hey, come here, I want to talk to you about something. From the other side, if your boss texts you today after uh, service and says, hey, I want to meet you, I need... Come meet me in my office first thing in the morning. I got to talk to you about something. And you're going, can I get COVID? Uh, where, how can I test positive? Um, because you know you did something wrong. That's, that's you not having rendered all of your service with goodwill. Because you're still worried that something, you know there's some, some lacking parts. And again, that goes back to, I wasn't really doing everything as if I was doing it to God, or I wouldn't have let those parts lack. Last, he says, knowing that I will be repaid by God, I'll receive it back from the Lord. Now, some of you in this room, you're underpaid. This verse should give you hope. Some of you in this room, you, you've been overlooked for uh, promotion after promotion after promotion. I want you to hear me. God sees what you're doing. Some of you in this room, you've been overlooked for promotions because of your gender. Some of you have been overlooked because of the color of your skin. God sees every time that somebody has played the system and kept you out of it. And our Father loves you, cares for you, and he will repay everything. Whether it happens this side or the next side, you will be repaid. Now, to the person in the room who's a slacker, God sees everything you're doing. And you're gonna miss out on reward because you were faithful with little. He couldn't entrust you with more. Don't let that happen to you. Heed the warning and understand who you're working for. Lastly, he turns a corner and he talks to masters. His masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there's no partiality with him. What he's after here is really three things. How to manage. If you're in this room and you got some people who are your employees, this is key, listen to this. He says, first of all, how we manage is we manage with a servant's heart because he said, you know that giant list of the things I just gave? You gotta do the same thing to them. What happens here is he's redefining leadership. Now, there's no such thing as just leadership that's based off your position or your title. Leadership is based on how willing you are to serve. He takes a pyramid and flips it completely on its head. And listen, don't miss this. Who did Paul talk to in all these things about submission? Husbands, fathers, masters. You know what all three of these people have in common? Penises. They're all men. What Paul is doing, fellas, listen to me here. Paul is redefining manhood. Got all the teenagers to listen to me again. They're all paying, they'll all look back up. What did he just say? Paul's redefining manhood, guys. He says, you fellas, 
You think that you can just come in and because you're the husband, your wife just has to do what you say. And you think because you're the daddy, your kids have to do what you say. And you think because you're the master, your slaves have to do what you say. No, fellas, listen, you now are in Christ. He's the king. He has the crown. Take yours off. Pick up a towel. Put that around your arm. Put a tiara on and go be a daddy. Go to find your servant and go, hey, how can I help you? He completely redefines manhood and says manhood will be defined by the ultimate man, Jesus, who, though he was in very nature, God considered equality, God, nothing to be grasped, but let that go and became a humble servant to all. And because he lowered himself to the lowest of low, God exalted him to the highest way and the highest place. And so he says to the men that he's talking to at the church in Ephesus, and I believe to the church of McDonough, the way up is down. The way up is down. You want to be a good dad? Serve. You want to be a good husband? Serve. You want to be a good manager? Serve. I've redefined what leadership looks like. And another way he redefines it, he says, stop threatening people, okay? God the Father wants people to follow him, not out of fear. You ever went to one of those Halloween things? It was like the tribulation trail. We're trying to scare the hell out of you and get you to come to Jesus. Like this is what's going like, Yes, everybody in the crowd, yeah, I'll, I'll save Jesus if, as long as like, I don't have to get my head cut off by the guy in the ski mask. Like sure, if that's what's really gonna look like, I will. And those kids were back at school the next week doing the same things that they were doing. It didn't work because it was a fear-based faith. And fear-based faith isn't faith. Faith has got to be rooted in love and trust. And so what he's saying here to the, the, the managers is like, lead in love. I've got to trust you. Don't lead in threats. Don't make them follow out of fear. And he says, there's no favoritism. This is the same God who's speaking on the half. Or this is the same Paul who's speaking on the half of the same God who had to hear decades worth of prayers from Jewish men, God, thank you that I'm not a woman, I'm not a slave, and I'm not a Gentile. And this is the God who I believe is, is sick of men who have places of power and who are of the right race thinking that they are somehow God's favorite. And so as this new church, primarily Gentile church, is starting, I think Paul's making it very clear to the men in the room and so that the women in the room hear them and hold them accountable, to the kids in the room and hear them and hold them accountable, to the slaves in the room hear them and hold them accountable. If you're a married father, slave owner in the room, you are just as much of God's favorite as the orphaned female slave. The end. Welcome to the gospel. And that's the point he's trying to make here. And so what this bottom line means for us Work is worship. When you go to work, it's your way of worshiping God. So this thing that we just did, this, this, this hour or so that we had in here, this is, not worship. this is worship, but this isn't all of it. It doesn't stop when you get in your car. Work is worship too. It's how you live and how you glorify God. And so the question then is, is my faith as sincere Monday through Friday as it is on Sunday? Like how sincere you were. We make a miracle. Like the way you're singing your heart out in here. Jesus paid it all. And you come to your boss, like, you ain't paying me enough. Like, like, are you the same sincerity in your faith that you have in this building, in your work building? Stay-at-home mamas, are you as sincere in, in, in there as you are in here? Or is it just a Sunday? God, God, I believe God's going to reward us not off of what we did on Sunday. He's going to bless us not off of who we are on Sunday. He's looking for people. And this is what's crazy about this, is your work. You can get into places, and you can share the gospel places I could never get into. You can glorify God in ways that I never could. Now, some of you in the room, I mean, I'm in your, I'm in your kitchen right now. You're going, ooh, but everybody works. Already, like I've already told a few bad jokes. They've already heard me say multiple, like almost every cuss word already. They've heard me say, um, I, I've already, I've already done some stuff. That like if I come in and I start being this Jesus guy or Jesus lady, they're all going to be like, what you hypocrite? Okay, first of all. Is Paul's redemptive story better because of how worse he was or how goody two-shoes of he was already? No. The fact that he was killing Christians makes his story that much more amazing. So the fact that you have said a few cuss words, the fact that you have slacked off, the, the fact that you have already been reprimanded by your boss, the fact that you're in a probationary period right now is all grounds for your testimony to be even more powerful. Don't let Satan or your flesh Use that as an excuse to continue to be lame at work. Let the gospel change you. 
Again, I'm not saying you're going to walk in, you know, you know, come into work tomorrow morning and just, you know, with your Bible open, just out there hitting them with Scripture and just, you know, throwing it. That's probably not the right way to do it. But start taking little baby steps towards integrity. And over time, you're going to become an employee that your boss loves to have. And you're going to become the coworker that people love to be around. And you will be gaining a witness and having a testimony that is undeniable. There's men in this church that I love being able to see their coworkers come to church. I love seeing uh, coworkers come. It's probably one of my favorite things. It's one thing to invite a family member. You got some relationship there. But man, you, look, guys. And when I say guys, I mean everybody. You, spend nine to, you will spend more time at work than you do at home. Why not leverage it for the gospel? It's, it, the, the fruit is on the vine. The harvest is ripe and plentiful. There are people at your job who are waiting for an invite right now. So to bring this all back in and make it all about Jesus, you will always struggle with work and feel like you're a slave to your work if you don't understand that the ultimate master, Jesus, became a slave so that you could be saved. You will always struggle with work for your identity, work for a people's approval. If you don't understand that Jesus is the, is the first and the only non-oppressive master. So today as we receive communion, my prayer is that you see what Jesus did as he was the ultimate Lord, the ultimate King, the ultimate master. And he chose to become a slave so that you could be set free from trying to people please, from trying to find your identity on how much money you make. From trying to be like an Egyptian, being defined by the number of bricks you could make. He says, I want to set you free from all that. I want to give you a new identity. To change your identity from being a slave to sin, slave to flesh, and a slave to righteousness. As you commune with him today and partake of the body broken for you and the blood poured out for you, I pray that you experience that like never, ever before. And you let Jesus change the way you work. From nine to five, from here on out. Let's pray. We love you, Jesus. Move in our hearts as we commune with you. In your name, amen.